The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi everyone, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, host of ASRM Today, and this week the show is a special preview episode of the new Fertility and Sterility on Air, which will be a new podcast from Fertility and Sterility that will be published very soon. This podcast is a very in-depth and engaging podcast that will tackle new issues of FNS with an expert panel of hosts. Please enjoy this preview episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air and look to subscribe to them soon. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello, everybody. I'm Kurt Barnhart, the media editor for Fertility and Sterility, and I'm proud to present our inaugural issue of FNS On Air, and we're going to go over the Fertility and Sterility Table of Contents for September 2020, Volume 114. Eve, what's in store for us? Thanks, Kurt. This month's journal has a lot of really great articles, ranging from OHSS predictors and outcomes, long-term follow-up of children born after frozen embryo transfer, heritability of subfertility, a case report of the use of a GnRH antagonist for adenomyosis, and compassionate embryo transfer. Great. And as is the case for all issues, we're going to start and go through the whole table of contents, which includes a views and reviews section, occasionally a fertile battle. We have one this month, inklings, ASRM pages, and then a host of original articles categorized in such categories as andrology, assisted reproduction, early pregnancy, environment, epidemiology, genetics, gynecology, reproductive health, and reproductive science. It's my privilege to start with this month's journal because we have a special feature. It's actually a piece written by Dan Domesic about Robert Jaffe in memoriam. In this month's journal, it's very eloquently written, a touching memorandum of Robert Jaffe. Dr. Jaffe enjoyed an iconic, distinguished international career in the field of reproductive medicine. He's well known for his contributions and leaderships, including his directorship at the Center for Reproductive Sciences at the University of California in San Francisco. He was a pioneer in the field of fetal and placental endocrinology and has trained many of us with both grace and professionalism. Of course, we'll all remember his iconic textbook, Jaffe's Reproductive Endocrinology, Physiology, Pathology, and, and Clinical Management. Dr. Jaffe was a true Renaissance man and he'll be greatly missed. Even Micah, could you become where you are without reading Dr. Chaffee's textbook? Not at all. Yeah, it was my go-to text throughout all of fellowship, for sure. Yeah, he, he will be missed, but he, he will be remembered. Next in this month's journal, we have views and reviews, which are one of the most highly rated and highly read aspects of the journal. Let's see what we have this month. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. So there are three very nice articles in the views and reviews this month. One is on follicular waves during the menstrual cycle by Bearwald. The second is on hipposignaline and ovarian follicle activation by Sue et al. And the third one is called 
the role of kispeptins in the control of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, old dogmas and new challenges by Rohan et al. And I think this is a fitting one following what you just discussed about Dr. Jaffe. In this uh, last review, they summarized the current consensus knowledge and open-ended questions on the sites of action, the physiologic role, and even eventual therapeutic implications of kispeptins in the control of the female reproductive axis. They review the roles of kispeptin and other KNDY neurons in controlling the HPO axis and mediating estradiol feedback. But they go even further and explore emerging knowledge about peripheral kispeptin actions, including in the ovaries for steroidogenesis and the endometrium, and even a role in implantation and early placentation. They conclude the article by exploring potential therapeutic targets, and this is what I found most interesting, uh, for medications that either act as an agonist or an antagonist to the kispeptin receptor. As you imagine, these could have actions in the hypothalamus to regulate GNRH and ultimately gonadotropins to induce follicular recruitment and ovulation, maybe in a manner that might be more physiologic than using exogenous gonadotropins. Even further, kispeptin antagonists are being explored in preclinical models to treat estrogen-mediated disease processes, uh, such as endometriosis and uterine fibroids, or even physiologic symptoms of menopause. And finally, serum peripheral kispeptin levels are being explored in studies as a potential biomarker for gestational tumors, risk of miscarriage, and even in predicting some obstetric outcomes, uh, such as the risk of preeclampsia. So, Eve, I believe you had the fertile battle for this month. What did we learn from that? This month was actually quite timely in consideration of where we are with COVID. The theme of this month was online and at-home traditional methods of healthcare, enhancing access or impeding optimal therapeutics. And this month's fertile battle examined three aspects of both online and at-home provisions of healthcare and compared them to the traditional models. Prosides were written by Raul Clavio, Ranjit Ramasamy, and Josh Halpern, and looked at the use of telemedicine for e-prescribing meds for sexual dysfunction, at-home diagnostic sperm testing, at-home sperm freezing for cancer patients, use of ovulation predictor kits, and the overall use of telemedicine to enhance access to care. Arguments in favor of these cite decreased patient embarrassment, especially for sexual dysfunction, increased access to infertility care in rural populations, expedient care for cancer patients, and cost savings. The con side were written by Alexis Melnick, Josh Stewart, and Zev Rosenwax, and they argued that the largest limitation of telehealth is the inability to perform a complete physical exam. Male infertility and sexual dysfunction may actually be signals of underlying general health issues or testicular cancers that would be missed by telehealth. The economics of, of telehealth have not yet been sorted out, the, plat the platforms were criticized for not being patient-friendly, and given socioeconomic status disparities, it was suggested that this may further broaden health disparities as patients of lower socioeconomic status may not be able to access care in this manner. However, I think it's quite timely. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought these issues to the forefront of medicine, so dive in deeper and check out this month's Fertile Battle. That's great. The next aspect in the journal is an inkling, and it really feeds into what we just heard in the fertile battle. In this inkling, Dr. Mark Sigmund questions whether we need a physical exam in andrology. It's really a poignant question during this COVID pandemic and the advent of telemedicine. It's interesting that physical exam relies on both inspection and palpation, 
And while it might be a bit awkward for inspection of hypospadias or androgenicity or the presence of two testes on telemedicine, I guess it's possible. But it's also intriguing to think that many andrologists are using imaging tests and lab tests to make diagnosis of CVAVD or varicocele rather than actually physical exam. So it's intriguing that perhaps we don't even need to see men. Anyway, if you read this article, this inkling, I'm not sure that Dr. Sigmund feels that we can completely do away with the exam. Maybe not yet anyway. Just make sure your telehealth platform is secure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The next section in the journal is the ASRM pages. Often ASRM publishes documents that are worthy for us all to read, and they're published in Fertility and Serility. One of the documents this month was Assisted Reproduction and COVID-19, a joint statement of ASRM, ESHRI, and IFFS. This document affirms that reproductive medicine is essential for well-being of society and for sustaining birth rates at times when our nations are experiencing declines, at least in some nations. The document lays out the need for advocacy and well-being of patients, monitoring local conditions and disease states, monitoring resources, implementing proactive risk assessment within practices when you're starting or potentially even closing practices. This document very eloquently summarizes the essential nature of reproductive medicine, but the understanding of local circumstances due to the pandemic need to be flexible and to take into considerations of local standards. Um, Eve, this document was needed and it's very eloquent, but was there any controversy in this? No, so I was one of six authors that participated in the discussions and ultimately the writing of the document. And it was amazing to see that so many of us from around the world we're all exactly on the same page. Oh, that's great. I mean, I'm not sure anything is surprising, but certainly it needs to be said. The other ASRM page that I want to draw your attention to is the cryopreservation of reproductive tissues in the IVF laboratory. This document is a really good document regarding the best practices of cryo storage of reproductive tissues. While this document is not exactly going to get your pulse going with excitement, it clearly and succinctly will help many clinics in the management of cryopreserved reproductive tissues, an essential aspect to all of our practices. It covers best practices for management of this irreplaceable reproductive tissues and can serve as a reference for minimal standards and other areas of concern. I guess that's the end of the commercial message at this point. Let's go into more of the original articles, and I think we're going to start with andrology section. So this first article talks about carriers of cystic fibrosis among sperm donors, complete CFTR gene analysis versus CFTR genotyping. And this was done by Marta Molina and senior author Jose Castilla from Spain. What is known? Cystic fibrosis is caused by mutations in the CFTR gene, which is carried on chromosome 7. Since the gene was first cloned, over 2,000 disease-causing sequence variants have been identified. And this large number of detected mutations in genotyping and phenotypic variability make the study of carriers really complex. As everyone knows, there are different clinical manifestations of disease, and these range from classic cystic fibrosis with lung and pancreatic insufficiency to versions such as pancreatic sufficient, chronic sinusitis, isolated pancreatitis, and also isolated genital bilateral absence of the VADS deferens, or CBAVD. The objective of this study was to determine the frequency of CF carriers among sperm donors in Spain. And what they did was they analyzed the complete CFTR gene and they compared the results with those that would have been done by the four most common genotyping panels used for CF carrier screening in Spain. They studied 935 sperm donors between 2014 and 2019. 
and the donors underwent CFTR gene study using complete sequencing of the CFTR gene, both the introns and the axons. All variants were identified and classified as pathogenic and variants or polymorphisms, or VUS, variants of uncertain significance. The authors analyzed the mutations included in the four commonly used genotyping tests, and they compared those results. The genotyping tests detect between 69 to 327 different variants. The variants that were identified in all four of the commercial genotyping tests were referred to as common, and those that were identified in just one of the tests was referred to as exclusive. What they found was the frequency of carrying any CF mutation was one in six. This is really remarkable. So 159 of 935 sperm donors were found to carry at least one pathogenic variant of the CFTR gene. The study highlights some really important points. First, you can't exclude a sperm donor that carries a CF mutation. With a one in six carrier frequency, elimination of all CF donors would greatly reduce the donor pool. What the study also highlights is that we should consider moving from a genotype-based testing to sequencing of the CFTR gene for both donors and recipients. I think genetic counseling is really needed for women using donor sperm to understand both the nuances and the risk of disease. Thanks, Eve. There's also a second article in the Andrology section, and this one's entitled Identification and Treatment of Men with Phospholipase Zeta Deficiency, or Defective Spermatozoa. As a background, we all know how absolutely vexing complete fertilization failure can be, and unfortunately, it's all too common in IVF. Sometimes, or I guess most times, this is thought to be a sperm problem, but it can also be an egg activation problem. And one of those enzymes related to egg activation is phospholipase zeta. This enzyme is related to cortical granule release of calcium in the oocyte at fertilization, part of the activation process of the oocyte. In this paper, the authors from Cornell, Dr. Chiang and senior author Dr. Palmero, identified 114 couples that had adequate sperm for ICSI, but fertilization rate was less than 10% and in many cases was a complete fertilization failure. They took the sperm and they tested it for functional, genetic, and epigenetic assays to identify sperm mutations that may be linked with failed fertilization. The goal of the study was to find out if the problem was really linked to the sperm or whether the problem perhaps was linked to the egg. The authors found out in about half of the cases there was a confirmed sperm-related oocyte activation deficiency due to the phospholipase C zeta assay. They also found specific genetic mutations associated with spermiogenesis and embryo development. So after they identified these potential issues, the couples went back for a subsequent IVF cycle with a modified supraovulation protocol to maximize oocyte maturity. This sounds unneeded, but if you think about it, what they're really trying to maximize is the cytoplasmic and nuclear maturation, therefore allowing perhaps better fertilization. Incommonately, sperm were treated with streptolysine O, an agent that permeates cell membranes and eggs were exposed to a calcium ionophore. These couples were then underwent a subsequent cycle with ICSI and the modified simulation protocol, and they found out that the fertilization was actually now compatible with historical controls and dramatically improved. The novelty of this study is the attempt to attribute fertilization failure to either the egg or the sperm. It also demonstrated that specific treatment of either would result in dramatic improvements of fertilization, number of oocytes created, number of live births in subsequent cycles. 
certainly there's some limitations in this open label study, but it adds exciting data to the possibility that we might be able to identify related egg activation deficiency and that it might be able to be treated. So really good work out of the Cornell Laboratory. Great. Thank you, Dr. Barnhart. So now we're moving on to the assisted reproduction section of the journal. First article we have looks at gonadotropin dosing and adverse IVF outcomes. The existing literature on this is very mixed or even controversial as to whether gonadotropin dosing has adverse effects on IVF outcomes. One of the challenges in interpreting this literature is that higher doses of gonadotropins are also associated with poor predictors of IVF success, such as advancing reproductive age and diminishing ovarian reserve. Further, many studies, or most of the studies that have asked this question, uh, have looked at fresh IVF cycles where we may have a direct adverse endometrial effect and we can't tease out a potential oocyte effect. This is addressed this month in an article called Total Follicle Stimulating Hormone Dose, is negatively correlated with live births in a donor-recipient model with fresh transfer, an analysis of 8,600 cycles from the SART registry by Shia et al. from Duke University. This was a retrospective cohort study of almost 9,000 donor oocyte recipients and used logistic regression modeling to adjust for donors and recipient level factors. They found that for every 500 unit increase in total FSH dose for donor stimulation, there was a 3% reduction in the odds of both clinical pregnancy and live birth for the oocyte recipient. The authors hypothesized that this detrimental effect on oocytes may not be due to frank aneuploidy or chromosomal damage, as recent studies have suggested there is no association with gonadotropin dosing and aneuploidy. So they hypothesized that instead the effect may be due to unmeasured changes such as epigenetic alterations or undetectable changes in oocyte quality or competency that are associated with higher doses. Jason Fernaziak, in the reflections piece on this article, outlined the potential weaknesses of using a SART registry database to attempt to answer this question. He concluded that it's difficult to determine from a retrospective study whether these results are due to an FSH effect on the oocyte through an epigenetic medium or some other media, or whether FSH dosing is simply a surrogate marker for an intrinsic deficiency in oocyte quality innate to that patient. While well, ultimately this study demonstrated a negative association with gonadotropin use and IVF outcomes in a donor model, we really need randomized trials to address this question well. And for my take on this study, I think this is a very hard question to look at retrospectively, trying to identify all the potential confounders. But ultimately, even if this study does demonstrate this risk, it's a relatively small risk. If you increase donor stimulation by 500 to 1,000 units, you would only have a 3% reduction in the odds of clinical pregnancy. So, so Kurt and Eve, what do you feel about using a retrospective database such as SART to attempt to address a question like this? I agree, Micah. I'm not sure that I can draw any conclusions from that study. I think that it really does ask the question of, whether or not there's an intrinsic egg defect that causes these donors to require more medication. Yeah. Well, the power in using the database is, is the numbers, obviously, but we do have to be a little careful in our interpretation because no matter how much data there is, you still can't get rid of some of the underlying confounding that might be involved in it. My favorite term, confounding by indication. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So the next uh, article is on compassionate embryo transfer, and this is when we place an embryo into the female reproductive tract at the time where pregnancy is unlikely to occur. And this might be requested by patients 
who don't necessarily want to have another child but have excessive embryos and don't want to go through traditional discarding of those embryos. So this practice is explored in an article entitled Compassionate Embryo Transfer, Physician Practices and Perspectives by Jacqueline Harrison et al. from Northwestern University. This study assessed the knowledge, practice patterns, and perceived barriers to compassionate embryo transfer by surveying the SREI membership, which represents the, uh, the board-certified REIs within the United States. Most REI physicians said that they were aware of compassionate embryo transfer, but less than half of them had ever offered it to a patient. The two main reasons that physicians said that it was utilized in such a low manner was a lack of patient interest and secondly, a lack of official guidance from ASRM. The authors concluded that practices should develop written policies about compassionate embryo transfer, and they recommended that ASRM consider developing a guidance document or even an ethics document on this practice. In the reflections piece talking about this article, Mansour and colleagues focus more on the patient perspective as opposed to the physician perspective, and they advocated for a comprehensive and ongoing informed consent process with shared burden and decision-making between physicians and the patient. So Eve, this is another article this month that you were a senior author on. Tell me what you felt was the most important thing that you learned from doing this study. I think I was most surprised by some of the strong sentiments away from compassionate transfer. And I actually like to think of it as non-reproductive transfer. But we were really surprised when we got the survey results how strongly people felt that it should not be offered and should not be an option. So I think ASRM actually had an ethics committee piece a few months ago that addressed the principles of autonomy and beneficence and non-maleficence. And there's a webinar coming up on September 11th about non-reproductive transfer. So tune in. So it obviously raises some issues that we don't think about a lot in our IVF practice, which is what does it do for success rates? How do we report it in SART? How much do you charge a patient? I mean, these things all have to be worked out. Exactly. I think those are the exact questions that we struggle with, and I think the exact reasons there was such heated emotion about it. All right, I'm going to take over again and go to another paper in assisted reproduction section here, and it's a, it's a really valuable one. One of the most studied aspects of ART in the last decade has been the pros and cons of the freeze-only strategy. While there's still some controversy in literature regarding this strategy in terms of overall efficacy and perhaps what's the correct population, there's some really great data in this month's journal from a very experienced group in this section. So the paper evaluates the development of children born from freeze-only strategy versus standard IVF, and it's from the same Vietnam group by Dr. Lan Viang, who published their original paper, the underlying RCT in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago. So current data suggests that children conceived with standard ART may have a greater propensity for low birth weight, and children conceived with a frozen thawed embryo transfer may have a greater propensity for macrosomia and preeclampsia. So this study takes the underlying data from their RCT to follow up children for a number of months later. It looks at 132 children conceived with freeze-only strategy and an equal number of the fresh embryo transfer, evaluating development status for greater than two years. The main instrument was the Ages and Stages Questionnaire, which is a well-developed and often used questionnaire for children of this age. So some of the high-quality findings of the study confirm that the birth weights were indeed 
um, higher in the freeze-only group compared to the standard IVF. But overall, the NICU admissions and other aspects of mortality and morbidity were similar between the two groups. It also looks at development at three years, and uh, interestingly, the age, height, and weight of the children in the two groups are similar at three years. The interesting findings are perhaps in the child development assays. It shows that some very interesting trends in some of the subscores for problem solving and fine motor skills that might be slightly higher in children conceived with frozen embryo transfer. However, these results are not statistically significant when you analyze singletons and twins separately. On the reassuring side, overall, the scores of the children were all reassuring, and there was no greater incidence of red flags or abnormal results between the two groups. So I'm sure this data will spur additional study on this incredibly important topic. The health in children conceived with ART should be paramount to us all. Based on this study, which again is based on an underlying RCT, which takes out some of the confounding inherent in observational studies, we can get perhaps a clearer picture However, because this is data from an underlying RCT, the numbers are relatively small and underpowered compared to cohorts. That said, the authors appropriately concluded that these data contribute additional reassuring information about the merits of a freeze-only strategy, but unfortunately, these results are not going to be definitive. Speaking of a freeze-all strategy, the next article is Ovarian Hyperstimulation Syndrome After Assisted Reproductive Technology trends, predictors, and pregnancy outcomes. This was a paper that was done by D. Austin Shermer and senior author Demetri Kissen from Emory University and the CDC. The goal of this study was to assess trends, predictors, and perinatal outcomes of OHSS associated with IVF cycles in the U.S. The authors also used a large database. They used the National ART Surveillance System, which includes data from 97% of cycles performed in the U.S., and they included all fresh embryo cycles and all embryo banking cycles from 2000 to 2015, a little over 1.8 million cycles, so a lot of data. They calculated the rate of moderate and severe OHSS as well as any OHSS and the use of GnRH antagonist where those data were available. They then compared the distribution of treatment characteristics for cycles complicated with OHSS. They studied age, BMI, race, number of prior pregnancies and outcomes, infertility diagnosis, and hospitalizations for complications and cycle cancellation. They did multivariable regression to assess predictive factors for OHSS in two groups. First group that they looked at was fresh autologous IVF cycles with embryo transfer, and the second group was embryo banking cycles. What did they find? Findings were not surprising, but I think still revealing. They saw that OHSS rates for all categories, any moderate and severe, increased between 2000 and 2006, and then the rates decreased from 2005 to 2015. Interestingly, the use of a GnRH antagonist increased between 2004 and 2015, and mirrored the decrease in OHSS rates, I think largely due to the use of an agonist trigger and freeze-all. They found that OHSS was more prevalent in younger women, those with fewer prior pregnancies, those with ovulatory factor, male factor, and DOR. I don't quite understand that one. Cycles that had more than 20 eggs retrieved and normal weight patients. In group one, fresh cycles, adjusted relative risk was highest in cycles with more than 30 oocytes compared to those with 11 to 15 oocytes. Risk of ovarian hyperstimulation was reduced in cycles with antagonist when that was used. 
In terms of the neonatal outcomes, I think what made the study so interesting was they found that OHSS was associated with a 30% higher risk of low birth weight in preterm delivery. But the unadjusted mean birth weight with OHSS was over 3,000 grams, and the unadjusted mean gestational age was 38.4 weeks. So clearly, normal weight and normal gestational age in singleton gestations. In all multiple gestations, OHSS was associated with an increased risk of second trimester loss. And I think this is one of the findings that was most surprising. The unadjusted mean gestational age of delivery with OHSS was 34.6 weeks compared to 35.6 weeks, so a week earlier in those with OHSS. The take-home message of this article is that the risks of OHSS are predictable, and for the health and safety of the patient and the fetus, aggressive measures should be taken to reduce the risk of OHSS. Uh, Kurt, I'm going to pass this off to you for your next article between IVF and placental disease. Terrific. Thank you, Eve. This article that we're going to talk about next is the association between in vitro fertilization and ischemic placental disease by gestational age. The authors come from Beth Israel and Boston IVF, Drs. Katherine Johnson and Dr. Anna Modest. Mike and Eve, we have a, a lot of conversations about what we do in ART and how it affects placentation. And one of my pet peeves is we don't really go deeper into what that actually means. We just say placentation. We don't know what we're affecting. So this paper looks at a composite outcome called ischemic placental disease, which is thought to occur from placental insufficiency and its association with IVF. Placental disorders may include things like preeclampsia, abruption, and intrauterine growth restrictions. So this paper is a secondary analysis of a long-standing retrospective cohort that was developed 15 years ago at a single tertiary hospital in Boston. It evaluates more than 69,000 deliveries, of which approximately 5% were conceived with IVF. And it has the expected incidence of preterm delivery that is about three times higher in children conceived with IVF compared to pregnancies that don't. Now, the association is strongly confounded by multiple births and maternal age. However, the authors attempt to control for these underlying factors, and after adjustment, this association is still maintained. So looking a little bit more specifically at this composite called ischemic placental diseases, we find out that the preterm ischemic placental disease is four times higher in women conceived with IVF than those that did not, especially in a preterm event, meaning that if you look at only children who are born preterm, this association of placental disease is really strong. If you look at children conceived at term, the association is still there, but at a weaker association, only at around 1.7. Now, the paper also includes sensitivity analysis restricted to singletons, um, and again, the association is maintained at around twofold. Now, it's difficult to ascertain if this association is due to underlying maternal factors, whether it's due to the preparation of the endometrium, or whether it's due to in vitro culture of gametes and embryos. This paper can't separate those issues. However, the advantage of this very large study is the precision of the estimates of potential adverse events, and as they mentioned, the identification of the temporal associations, such as that this risk seems to be much stronger in preterm infants. Now, one can always find potential limitations in a large-scale epidemiologic study such as this. For example, it's difficult to match the number and age of women with multiple births with assisted reproduction to those with an unassisted reproduction. 
Despite this, however, the study confirms that the association of in vitro fertilization and disorders that are thought to be related to placentation appears to be real and appears to be relatively strong. Future study is gonna help us figure out what to do about this association. But first of all, we should need to be aware of it and not minimize this risk when we counsel our patients. The study was conducted between 2000 and 2015, and practices have probably already changed since then, um, including freeze-all strategies, which may minimize some of these risks. But most importantly, they minimize the risk because of the number of embryos transferred has been decreased. However, this association should be concerned to all of us, as the number of children conceived with ART increases around the United States and around the world, and maternal and perinatal mortality needs to be under the purview and attention of those that practice reproductive medicine. I couldn't agree more. I actually think it's really interesting to think about the association between culture conditions and some of the differences in culture conditions between laboratory programs. This next study that I'm gonna review called Double Trouble, Clinic-Specific Risk Factors for Monozygotic Twinning does exactly that. It's written by Dennis Vaughn with senior author Denny Sackis and a reflection written by Ann Hutchinson, one of the fellows at Northwestern. So what is known, monozygotic twinning occurs when a single zygote divides early in embryonic development. The incidence in spontaneous conceptions is 1 in 250, and interestingly, monozygotic twinning is increased among IVF patients compared to the general population, and some studies have reported that risk to be 0.7%, and other studies have reported as high as 13%. Not surprisingly, monozygotic twin pregnancies carry higher risks of miscarriage, IUFD, IUGR, and preterm birth. And the objective of this study was to investigate risk factors for monozygotic twinning using a large electronic database. The authors were looking to find clinic-specific incidents of monozygotic twins and whether practice patterns such as type of media or method of cryopreservation were associated with monozygotic twin risks. This was a retrospective case control study of monozygotic pregnancies from five large US-based IVF clinics. They extracted data from a single electronic medical record, EIVF, and cycles were included between 2004 and 2016. So again, possibly some changes in culture media between those years. Only autologous cycles with a single embryo transfer that resulted in pregnancy were included in the analysis. They took it one step further. They did sex confirmation, and twin pregnancies with discordant sex were excluded from the analysis. They also used viable singleton pregnancies as the comparison group. So what did they find? There were 235 monozygotic pregnancies and 8,514 singleton pregnancies in the comparison group. The overall monozygotic twin rate was 2.7%. They did a stepwise logistic regression to test for an association between risk factors for monozygotic twins and the likelihood of monozygotic twins. What the authors found was that the clinic where IVF was performed was a risk factor for monozygotic twins. Age, cycle type, and media type were not significant risk factors. The authors then looked at risk factors by cycle type, fresh and frozen. For fresh cycles, they also did logistic regression examining risk factors. The only independent risk factor identified was the use of sequential media. Again, age, transfer days, number of eggs retrieved, use of ICSI or assisted hatching were not associated with the risk of monozygotic twins. For frozen cycles, the only significant risk factor was the clinic where IVF was performed. 
And so the take-home nugget from this study is given the increased complication rates and healthcare costs associated with monozygotic twins, it's really important to understand the mechanism and identify these modifiable risk factors. Thank you, Eve. And then in the last article in the ART section of the September Journal of Fertility and Sterility looks at subchorionic hemorrhage. And the impact of an early obstetric subchorionic hemorrhage is controversial, but it may be associated with some increased risks such as miscarriage, although the studies are split on whether or not such an association is there. But to date, no study has evaluated the association of the type of frozen embryo transfer protocol on the prevalence of subchorionic hemorrhage. This is addressed in September by Reich et al. from NYU in an article called Comparison of Subchorionic Hematoma in Medicated or Natural Single Euploid Frozen Embryo Transfer Cycles. This was a retrospective cohort study of over 1,200 patients that compared natural cycle FET, free of exogenous estradiol supplementation, to programmed FET, which was supplemented with both oral estradiol and intramuscular progesterone. Subchorionic hemorrhage was higher in programmed FET cycles at 14% versus only 7% in natural cycles, so it was twice as likely to occur. While programmed cycles had higher estradiol levels, when they evaluated estradiol independently, it was not associated with the likelihood of having subchorionic hemorrhage. So it was not the higher estradiol itself in the programmed cycles that led to this increased prevalence. Interestingly, the prevalence of SCH in the study was not associated with an increased risk of miscarriage, consistent with some of the prior literature. In the reflections piece from Rides and colleagues, this paper is discussed in the broader context of the role of a corpus luteum in ART, and that has implications in many of the papers that we're, we are discussing in this article in September, because there is a increasing body of data showing that the presence of a corpus luteum and assisted reproductive technologies may actually be protective against adverse obstetric outcomes. I think that's a really important question, Micah, and there's going to be a multi-center randomized trial looking at that exact question, comparing natural cycle FET to program cycle FET, looking at the primary outcome of preeclampsia in those patients. So more information will certainly be coming down the pipeline for us to guide our practices. Thanks, Eve. We're going to move away from ART, and I'm going to review a, a paper in the early pregnancy section. So this is really both of general gynecologic interest and probably of interest to us all. The title of the paper is Pregnancy and Neonatal Outcome Up to 42 Months Following Application of a Hyaluronic Acid Gel After Dilatation and Curatage for Miscarriage in Women Who Have Experienced at Least One Previous Curatage, Follow-Up from a Randomized Clinical Trial. Man, that was a mouthful, but that title really does say everything what the paper does. This article by Dr. Angelo Hooker from the Netherlands assesses how an intrauterine gel, called ACP for short, may decrease uterine adhesions following dilatation and curatage. Now, miscarriage is unfortunately all too common, and surgical management is still one of the mainstays of treatment. Interuterine adhesions are a well-known complication, which at a minimum can lead to perhaps pain and menstrual cycle changes, but really can also lead to decrease in fertility and Asherman syndrome. So this prevention trial follows up that of a randomized trial published in Fertility and Serility in 2017, where the primary study shows that you can decrease adhesion rates by more than 50%, from 30% to 13%, 
and showed an accumulated pregnancy rate 12 months after therapy that was also higher with a relative risk of about 1.5. This current study looks at the same study population, but now we have a longer follow-up of around 42 months. So the authors were able to follow about 150 people equally distributed between the intervention group and the control group. The main finding of the study was that the intervention resulted in a decrease in miscarriage and an increased live birth rate of around 30% compared to no treatment at all. This increase was even stronger when you looked at a population of women who actually were trying to conceive as opposed to lumping all women together. It also showed that the time to conception was about 15 months shorter. So the bottom line is that this ACP gel, which is an autocross-linked hyaluronic acid gel placed in the uterine cavity after surgical management of a miscarriage actually may have some benefit. Now, many of the trends in this study did not reach statistical significance due to the fact that it is a secondary analysis of a randomized trial and lacked the power. But overall, this is a very nice study demonstrating the possible benefits of adding a gel at the time of DNC. Certainly, we need high-quality RCTs to demonstrate that this effect is long-lasting and what is the order of magnitude, but this data is very encouraging. There's a very complimentary editorial accompanying this piece, which also describes the history of this ACP gel and why this association is probably evidence-based and not associated with any commercial bias. I think the next section we're going to move to is in the environment. So there's a growing body of literature looking at dietary patterns and potential association with both fertility and even infertility treatment success. One of the proposed or hypothesized mechanisms for diet impacting fertility is through dietary-mediated improvement in ovarian reserve. The EARTH study team sought to investigate this association between dietary patterns previously shown to be related outcomes with ovarian reserve as measured by antral follicle count. The article was entitled Dietary Patterns in Ovarian Reserve Among Women Attending a Fertility Clinic, and this was a prospective cohort study of 363 women seeking fertility care at Mass General Hospital. Upon enrollment into the infertility clinic, the authors surveyed the patients and identified three dietary patterns over the prior year, Mediterranean diet, the fertility diet, and the pro-fertility diet. The three fertility diets uh, when analyzed, were not found to be associated with ovarian reserve or higher ovarian reserve, again, as measured by antral follicle count. So they did not find that fertility diet affected fertility through improving ovarian reserve. Kim and Purdue Smith wrote a nice reflections article on this, and they noted that the study only assessed a single measure of ovarian reserve at the time of enrollment into fertility clinic and only assessed dietary patterns over the prior year. They noted that it is possible that long-term dietary patterns with a longitudinal assessment of ovarian reserve might reveal different outcomes than this more short-term study did. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. And I think that the next study that we're going to review really addresses the idea of environment versus genetics. This study is called Heritability of Subfertility Among Danish Twins, and it's by Linda Joel Ehrenfeld et al. from Denmark. And what is known, I mean, as you said, little is known about the biological and environmental factors that affect fecundity. Hypotheses on the mechanism behind low fecundity are based on the developmental origins of health and human disease hypothesis. 
This suggests that certain environmental exposures during critical periods of development can have profound consequences for the health of those affected. Nutritional deprivation and environmental exposures during fetal life, not one year prior to study, might cause higher risks of disease and higher mortality in adulthood. In women, smoking, obesity, and alcohol have been linked to poor reproductive outcomes. In men, worsening semen analyses have been linked to obesity, sedentary lifestyle, tobacco, alcohol, poor nutrition, and sleep. So how do we study this? One of the most powerful study designs for conducting genetic studies is the twin model with comparison between monozygotic and dizygotic twins. If monozygotic twins are more similar for a specific trait than dizygotic twins, then this assumes a genetic influence of the trait. Basically, you can observe phenotypic variances and they can be broken down into additive genetic effects, common or shared environmental effects, and E or environmental effects. And you see a lot of the talk about ACE modeling, which breaks it down into those. Heritability is a statistical concept that describes how much of the variation in a given trait is due to genetic differences among individuals. In this study, the authors use time to pregnancy as a marker of fecundity. They use this because it's highly recalled and it's a sensitive marker of fecundity in both men and women. And the objective of this study was to quantify the relative contribution of genetic, shared environmental, and non-shared environmental components to subfertility among male and female twins. They split the variation of subfertility into this A, C, and E model by combining data from two large Danish twin cohort survey studies during a 45-year period. The study included same-sex twins aged 18 and older, and they had a large cohort of both monozygotic and dizygotic male and female twin pairs. They categorized the time to pregnancy as binary, less than 10 months, greater than 10 months. The authors used a quantitative genetic liability threshold model to split risk into genetic, common environmental, and unique environmental effects. What did they find? In the female model, genetics explained 28% of the variation in time to pregnancy, while unique environmental factors explain the rest. This is in sharp contrast to the male model, where genetic factors only explain 4% of the variation in time to pregnancy. Unique environmental factors in the male accounted for 96% of the variation. The authors also looked at the probability of subfertility when the co-twin was subfertile and found this to be higher in females. Interestingly, for males, there was no clear pattern of heritability. So the take-home message of this article is that genetic factors seem to be more important for females and environmental factors seem to be more important for males. So I'm going to move a little bit away from twins and switch gears to talk about a case report that was published in this journal. And this was actually a really fascinating case report. And I would encourage all of our listeners to go look at the images that are shown. So the title of this is GNRH Antagonist Linzagolix, A New Therapy for Uterine Adenomyosis. And this was by Olivier Donnet and Jacques Donnet with a really nice reflection by Andrea Barini and Giovanni Coticcio. And this case report was of a woman who initially presented at age 26 with a history of heavy menstrual bleeding, pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, and a desire for future pregnancy. On a clinical examination, uterus measured 12 weeks in size, and MRI showed diffuse disseminated adenomyosis with endometrial cysts. 
She was initially started on five milligrams of Eulopristil daily for three months. She had worsening of her symptoms and marked worsening of her findings as seen on MRI. Two years later, her uterus measured 18 weeks and she was begun on the new oral GnRH antagonist, Linzagolex. Patient took this as, at a dose of 200 milligrams daily for 12 weeks and then dropped the dose down to 100 milligrams once daily for 12 weeks. During that time period, she experienced amenorrhea and symptomatic relief. MRI showed regression of the lesions, and again, I highly encourage everybody to look at the images. They are remarkable. And clinical evaluation showed a uterus that was estimated to be 10 weeks size. Further studies are needed, but this is a really interesting case report that shows promise for treatment of adenomyosis in women who want to preserve fertility. Thank you, Eve. I'm going to make an even greater transition, and we're going to move more to reproductive endocrinology. And the study I'd like to present is called Anti-Malarian Hormone and F2 Isoprostanes in Coronary Artery Risk Development in Young Adults, or what the acronym is, is the CARDIA study. This study is a large consortium with first author Catherine Kim from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and senior author Melissa Wellens from Vanderbilt University. Now, we face the concept of reproductive aging every day in our practice in reproductive medicine. The steady decline of the number and the quality of oocytes seems to be inevitable and at times without clear cause or even remedy. One of the theories regarding reproductive aging is the concept of damage from oxidative stress due to free radical mediated processes. And one of the important enzymes in this process is the production of F2 isoprostine. This marker has been used to study oxidative stress in relation to many chronic diseases, including breast cancer, cardiovascular disease, and depression. In the CARDIA study, um, since 1985, this group has been following 400 black and 400 white women in the late reproductive ages, um, starting and through age 40. The goal of this manuscript is to present the results of the correlation between AMH levels and plasma concentrations of F2 isoprostane as a surrogate for reproductive aging. This is a very elegant cross-sectional study. The main finding is that higher levels of F2 isoprostanes are associated with lower levels of AMH. Not only that, this association is stronger in younger women. So therefore, it is hypothesized that this marker, which is also a marker of inflammation, may be one of the most measurable correlates of reproductive aging. Of note, other markers of oxidative stress along this pathway, including oxidative low-density lipoproteins, were not associated with AMH at any level. This begs the question, is this the oxidative stress pathway in general, or just is it a specific marker that correlates both with oxidative stress and inflammation that is the marker of ovarian reserve? This is a very nice epidemiologic study that controls for many measurable potential confounders. The study gets us one step closer to understanding the rate of ovarian aging and how it differs across women and certainly warrants longitudinal prospective study to determine the temporal relationships between oxidative stress and changes of ovarian reserve. There's a very nice reflection piece by Wendy Vitek and Julia Rijos, um, which really addresses the question that you all should be thinking. Is this truly guilt by association, or is this really truly an important association that we found? So, Unfortunately, not ready to change my practice with this measure, but this is really strong work that should be highlighted in this month's journal. Thank you, Kurt. So now we're moving a little bit deeper into the basic science section of the journal. 
uh, where they're looking at spheroid-like blastocysts to study implantation. The study of human embryo implantation is challenging, both from a technical standpoint, but also in many countries from a legal standpoint. So most of the study designs that we have looking at implantation have to rely on models. And these include mouse embryo models or human cell lines derived from trophoblast tissue or choriocarcinoma. But a mouse isn't necessarily a perfect analog for human implantation, and neither is choriocarcinoma. So these authors look to better explore trophoblast spheroids as a good model to study human implantation. Their article was entitled Human Embryonic Stem Cell-Derived Blastocyst-Like Spheroids Resemble Human Trophectoderm During Early Implantation Process. And this was from Yu et al. and Hong Kong University. In prior studies, this group has established a protocol to induce human embryonic stem cells to take on a spheroid shape that morphologically resembles a human blastocyst and can even attach to receptive endometrial epithelial cells. In the present study, they then evaluated the transcriptome of these spheroids and compared it to the transcriptome of pre-implantation human blastocysts. They demonstrated that induction of trophectoderm signaling pathways, including the HIPPO pathway, occurred at 48 to 72 hours, similar to in human blastocysts. The HIPPO pathway is one that is involved in cell proliferation, so it is active in blastocyst growth and in the endometrium, as you might expect, as both of those tissues are undergoing cellular proliferation. Not only did they demonstrate a similar transcriptome to a human blastocyst, but they also demonstrated that these spheroids were more likely to adhere to endometrial cells retrieved from a receptive uterus versus those retrieved from a uterus that was not in the receptive time. They concluded that this cell model is an appropriate surrogate to study trophoblast development and endometrial receptivity. The Reflections piece article by Diaz, Gemino, and Cervello predicted that in the near future, models like this might even enable us to test a patient's endometrium for receptivity by getting tissue samples at various time points and putting these spheroids in and seeing if they attach to that endometrium. So this was a very nice basic science study that also may have some bench-to-bedside translational implications for how we can study patients' receptivity at an individual patient level. Thank you, Micah and Eve. I think that was a very good synopsis of the scientific content of this month's journal. I also want to mention that Fertility and Sterility has video articles. Obviously, it's a little difficult for us to summarize them for you in a podcast, but please take a look at the video article this month entitled Simplified Two-Step Technique for Transvaginal Natural Orifice Transillumination Endoscopic Surgery. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.